Hey men, my name is Mace and I serve as the men's discipleship coordinator here at FaithBridge. FaithBridge men exist to create a movement among the men in our church and our community where men can experience the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, develop authentic community with other men, and live a life of eternal significance. Our theme for the entire spring season is fight the good fight. Life is tough. It's a battle. Temptation and trial are around every corner. But on our deathbed, we want to be able to look our loved ones in the eye and say, like the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. We want to be men who fight the good fight, men who believe the true gospel and are being transformed by the gospel. Jeremiah Morris, planting and lead pastor of Seven Mile Road, Houston, kicked off our spring season with this powerful and inspiring message at our spring 2022 Shop Talk event. I pray it encourages you and helps you fight the good fight. Well, I know our speaker for tonight, Jeremiah Morris, through uh, the Houston Church Planning Network. He's actually one of the men was, was, that was in one of the very first classes of their church planning residency when he planted the church that he still leads to this day, a church called Seven Mile Road, Houston, down inside the city. And he now actually sits on the, the board of the Houston Church Planning Network alongside our very own Pastor Ken. And as someone who has personally sat under his teaching before, let me tell you, you are in for a treat tonight and not just the barbecue. So let's give Jeremiah a warm welcome as he comes to teach us tonight. <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Mace. Thank you for having me. Um, I love FaithBridge. It's been from a distance because of the impact that Ken has had on me. I've heard a great deal about the ministry he has shared with me and he's one of the calls that I often make when I find myself in a quandary. And so I've been drafting off of the ministry of FaithBridge and Ken Warline for the last six years of my planting journey and the opportunity to get to spend an evening with you guys, getting to hopefully serve you and invest in you is a real privilege, I'm eager to do it. As Mace has introduced and as he's explained to me, you're launching out on a journey called Fight the Good Fight and you've got the t-shirt to prove it. This is where you're headed, learning to fight the good fight. This is a study of First Timothy that you will be doing starting next week. Those of you that plunge in and I hope you all do. The interesting thing is that in 1 Timothy, you've got Paul telling Timothy, fight the good fight. In 2 Timothy, he's coming to the end of his life and he says, I have fought the good fight. And in order to help you launch out in a faithful way, what I'd like to do is kind of start from that end, that idea of I fought the good fight so that as you plunge in thinking, okay, we wanna be the sort of men that learn how to fight. I want to, I wanna give you two tools or rather I wanna highlight two tools that have to be in your toolbox if you're gonna be the sort of men that don't just start it, don't just engage the fight, but finish the fight. I wanna, I wanna highlight two tools that in many ways will answer the question, how is it possible to stay healthy and faithful to the end? There's a lot of really great starters, but there's very few strong finishers. And I'm longing that God would raise up many men in this community that would fight the good fight and not just for a moment, not just 
and a moment of inspiration or excitement or for six weeks, but the sort of men that would finish till the end. And I believe that there are two tools that are crucial if you're gonna be those sorts of men that don't just fight the good fight, but come to the end and say, we've fought the good fight. Um, I remember years ago, I was having a series of repeated dreams. And I don't know if you've ever had this sort of dream, the one that wakes you up in a cold sweat going, ooh, I'm so glad that that was just a dream. But I was having this dream over and over again that I was in the shower. And I was in the shower, just kind of, you know, washing my hair, soaping up. And then all of a sudden I felt a draft and I turned around and my entire community was standing there watching me in the shower. And then I'd wake up and go, oh, wow. And night after night, I was having this experience. And I, I began to realize that, you know, I don't think you have to be a psychologist or a diviner to realize that there was a, a bubbling unhealth in me that I was... I was feeling a divide between my public persona and my private person. I was, I was not, as it were, fighting the good fight in the way that it's been defined around here about really believing the gospel and being transformed by it in real deep ways that start from the inside and work their way out. And, and in many ways, that division, that that potential nominal tip of the hat to the truth of the gospel, but not really embracing it and being transformed by it is a tremendous threat to coming to the end of the road and saying, I fought the fight all the way to the end. Any hint of division between who we present ourselves to be and who we are privately is a threat to being men who really fight the good fight. And so, so the two tools that I wanna highlight tonight are tools that are gonna help us be whole men true men in the secret and in the, in the public place that are prepared to be healthy to the end, to fight the good fight all the way to the conclusion. And in order to get at these tools, we're gonna to be in James chapter five. If you brought a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it. We'll also have the verses on the screen, but I, I certainly value you having the context and being able to look at it there in front of you if you've got it. Um, this is the end of the book of James. And the reason I think it squares with our discussion of fighting the good fight is James is, James is kind of like a quarterback at the line. If you read James, it's like barking orders. He's just reading the defense and calling out orders. It's quick and fast. There's 54 commands and 108 verses. That's one for every two verses. He's just issuing commands. And if you read it straight through, you're reading a part and then all of a sudden he changes to a new topic and he gives no hint as to how the last one connected to this one, he's on to the next one because he's urgent. He's equipping a community that's in the middle of a fight, the tribes in dispersion that are dealing with trouble and struggle. And as he comes to the final portion of this really quick letter that reads like a quarterback at the line barking orders, he is in a sense describing what is a community that finishes? What does it look like to be a faithful community to the end? And so we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Just before I read these verses, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This means tonight that everything in the physical world is coming undone. But when we come to the word of God, we're, we're coming in touch with something that's eternal and life-giving and powerful. And we would be really, really wise to pay attention James 5, 
starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in this final passage where James is equipping a community to be faithful all the way to the end, to fight the good fight, he is identifying two tools and he almost lays them over like two threads that go one and then the other. And then he comes back to the first and he goes back to the second. He's weaving them together as if these two threads, these two tools in your toolbox will equip you to stay faithful to the end. The first one is to be honest with God. Did you hear all of the Godward talk in these verses about the way that we're interacting directly with God and the honesty that is marking that interaction? I just want to highlight it for us in a, in a few different ways. He starts off on, on a note saying, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then comes back, is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church. We'll take that middle one first. He says, if 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 anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. The first note of being honest with God is being willing to be the sort of man that's, that's willing to, to worship, to worship with abandon. He's actually saying that we, if we're gonna be people that are really honest with God, we actually have to be people that are willing to express the high notes with God, which I think for men, oftentimes it doesn't come naturally to me. And I think for a lot of men, it doesn't. We, we kind of feel like, that's my wife's job. She really loves worship and she's totally into it. But as far as me being a worshiper, that's not my natural inclination. Except that what I've begun to realize is that God calls me to it. He actually believes it's a weapon for us. God has given it as a, as a weapon to engage in the battle that when we have joy bubbling up in our hearts or we encounter something that causes us to be cheerful, as the text says, he says, there's an appropriate response. We ought to sing. It's actually the theology in the Bible of the new song. You ever read about the new song? It's all throughout the Psalms and then it shows up again in Revelation. And the idea is this, that for all of eternity, imagine this, a thousand years and then 10,000 years and then a hundred thousand years. It says that we will continue to sing the new song in Revelation, just like the, the authors of the Psalms talked about, because the idea is this, 10 billion years from now in the presence of God, we will still be looking at him and going, oh, 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 I had no idea. Like we will never plumb the depths of God because he is eternal in his greatness and his perfection. And there's a point at which words just don't suffice. 
I want you to think about it this way. I want, I want you to imagine that you're taking your, your wife or girlfriend or that someone special out to a, to a lovely dinner. Maybe it's an anniversary, some special occasion. And there's the white tablecloth and the candles are there. And you are channeling all of your like romantic, everything that you can muster. And you look across the table at her and you say, you are five foot four inches tall. And you just wait to let it sink in, waiting for her to melt. Your hair, it's brown. It's about this long. Your eyes are green. Now, is your wife going to swoon? She's going to go, oh, this is music to my ears. This is so touching. You know, it's not going to happen because romance and emotion and passion is not, cannot fully be contained by facts and the rehearsing of facts. And so often we, we think that if we're really serious about our faith, we're gonna memorize all the facts and we're gonna be able to rehearse them all. And certainly having good theology and loving the scriptures is crucial to being men that are understanding what it means to fight the good fight. But it's interesting that as James is like a quarterback at the line coaching these, this community, how to be faithful to the end. One of the notes he makes is you need to sing. Because if all of your experience with God can be contained by the restatement of facts, you actually haven't started to touch the deeper realities of what it means to be in relationship with a living person. There should be moments in our journey that take us to places where we go, you know what? I need rhyme and I need melody. I need song to capture this thing that's happening in me. What does it look like to hit the the high notes and to express yourself fully to God, to enjoy him and to love him. Honesty with God means we're willing to go to the high notes, but interestingly, and I think appropriately, did you see that this is sandwiched between hard situations? He says, if you're cheerful, sing, but before and after it, what he says is, are you suffering or are you sick? And isn't that just the way life goes? Like, yes, there's cheerful moments, but oftentimes it's sandwiched by some suffering and some sickness because that's just life in a broken world. And what he's saying is this, that if we're gonna be the sort of men that are honest with God, then we have to be willing to, to worship with abandon in the moments where there's, uh, there's things worthy of celebrating, but we also have to be willing to, to pray desperately in the moments that are hard. We have to be willing to be honest with God to let the full weight of what we're walking through known to him. So often we think, well, I can just bear this burden. I'll keep marching. I know how to be tough. I know how to take the next step. Philippians 4 tells us to make our, let our requests be made known to God. And the interesting thing about the construction of that passage where we're told to let all of our requests or our petitions be made known to God is there's a parallel statement that says, let your reasonableness be known to all people and let your requests be made known to God. And what I've found is that so frequently I invert those. I do the opposite. I I talk about my suffering or my struggle with other people. Yeah, it's been hard, you know, we're going through this. Or, and, and I almost find myself complaining or grumbling or rehearsing my request to other people. And then when it comes time to be with God, I'm very reasonable with him. Oh God, thank you. I know that you're good and you hold everything together. And it's a prayer that kind of sounds like the last hundred prayers I've prayed. And I'm not really praying the honest, hard realities back to God and leaving them before him. The reality is that 
that God is calling us into this place of honesty with him that would call us to hit the high notes, but then in the challenges of life, he's going, give it to me, bring it all to me. How many Psalms are there in the middle of your Bible? Anybody know? 150, 150 Psalms. This is the book that's intended to teach you how to pray. Okay, spirit-inspired prayers that are saying, okay, if you don't know how to pray, just pray this and you'll learn. It's like learning a new language. You'll start to learn the language of prayer if you just pray these Psalms. Now of these 150, how many of them are lament? We know what a lament is, grief, wrestling, asking questions like, God, where are you? Do you even listen? How many, how many of the 150 are lament? Did you know that? 50, a full one-third of the Spirit-inspired prayers in your Bible are lament. They are the gut-wrenching, honest prayers of people that are not pretending to play a religious game with God, but they're in a relationship with God going, I need you here with me now. And that may even mean that all I can muster is a hard question, or it may just be a groan but I'm here in your presence being honest. If we're gonna be the sort of men that stay whole, we don't get divided into this public persona that's tough and has it all together and a private one that's doing something different. If we, the first step is that we actually have to start to be honest with God, being willing to worship, being willing to pray desperately in the midst of suffering. I realized some time back that uh, I have very different short conversations depending on who I'm talking to. There's a security guard that works at the, at the building I used to work in and I would stop at the, at the front desk every time I came through and I'd say, how are you Deidre? And she'd say, oh, I'm good. And then I'd, I'd ask about her daughter who's a track star. And she said, oh yeah, she's still setting records. Great. And how's the baby? Oh, he's as cute as ever. Wonderful. Sounds good. Deidre, have a great day. And I'd have that conversation because I genuinely cared about Deidre. I thought about her, I, I, I wanted to be involved and invested. But at the same time, every time it was about 90 seconds long, we hit the same marks and that was the content because quite frankly, we were acquaintances that passed quickly. My best friend's name is Joseph, he lives in Dallas and we oftentimes talk for about 90 seconds in between things because we both have three kids and a busy job and a lot going on. And so we just catch each other in between things but the tone and the tenor and the flow of the conversation is always different because we waste no time. Man, my wife is really struggling and I'm trying to figure out how to hold her up right now. I feel like I keep blowing it. Will you pray for me? And all of a sudden I realized that, or you're not gonna believe what just happened, this amazing thing happened. And I started to realize that the distinction is the depth of relationship shapes the tone and the tenor of those 90 second conversations. And so my question for you is, does your prayer life sound like you're talking to the security guard out front or to your best friend? Does it always have the same marks, the same emotion, the same length? Bless this food. Thank you, God. Watch over my kids. Good night. Has God just become an acquaintance that stands guard over your life out front? Because if we're gonna be the sort of men that fight to the end, it's gotta be more than that. We can't be playing religious games. He's beckoning to us and saying, would you give it all to me? Would you pray desperately in the moments where you're undone? Would you pray fervently? 
You see, as we, as we keep reading, what we see is this, that Elijah is the picture of this sort of prayer for us. Did you see it? He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great powers as, it wor- as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it didn't rain on the earth. It's interesting that phrase prayed fervently. It's a noun and a verb in the, in the Greek, but it actually, the noun means fervent prayers and then it's prayed fervently. So it's, he, he prayed fervent prayers fervently. It's incredibly clunky in the original language and that's on purpose because what it's saying is this, yes, I want all of you. I want the high notes and I want the low notes, but I want all of it with some fervor, like you care. I want you to start to figure out what does it look like to come to me with all that you are. He says, when you start praying in those sorts of ways, it will be powerful. Oftentimes this just means that we have to, we have to create a little space for it. We have to linger. Do we men that, Don't rush, but linger for a bit and pray until we've prayed. You know the difference? Like it's been been coached to me to pray until you've prayed and to read until you've read. That's how you know you've spent time with God. It's not just to check a box, but it's that moment where, oh, my heart is really communing with God, which oftentimes requires that I create enough space and plan for it and slow down. The story that this text is referring to of Elijah is that moment with Ahab where he prayed and it wouldn't rain and then he prayed again and it did rain. Do you remember this story? It's in 1 Kings. And I, I love the story of when, it, when he comes to announce to Ahab that it's, it's gonna rain. And uh, he then goes to pray and his assistant is with him. It's a story where he goes up on a bluff looking out over, over an area and it says that he put his head down between his knees and he starts to pray. And this is a man that it's been three and a half years since it's rained and he's praying, God, it's time to send the rains. And he says to his assistant without leaving this position, he says, go out and look and tell me what you see. And the assistant goes and looks and he comes back and he says, I don't see anything. Here's Elijah still in this position. Okay, go check again. And he goes and he comes back. I don't see anything. Go again comes back, still nothing. Can almost feel like this is probably getting awkward. (laughs) Like if I'm Elijah's assistant, it's like, what do I say this time? Uh, The fifth time he says, go back and look. And the assistant comes back, nothing, Elijah. Sixth time he goes, he comes back, nothing. And I just imagine this is what it means when, when you get prayed fervently. He lingered. He's longing for God. He's pressing into him with all that he has. And he's still in this position with his head between his knees. And the seventh time he says, go and look again. And the man comes back and he says, I see a cloud and it's the size of a fist. It's out on the horizon. And Elijah steps up, stands up and he starts brushing himself off. And he says, tell the king it's about to rain. It's a man that understood what it was to pray until he prayed. And the struggle is that I'm more like my kids who like to, ring doorbells and run away because they think it's funny. And there's just so many of the prayers in my life where I knock a couple of times and then because I'm impatient and because I didn't ever really believe God was gonna do anything anyway, I just keep going. I go figure, out, figure it out on my own. And I'm robbed of the reality of understanding what it is to be fully present to and with God in the ways that he is desiring. He's desiring us to pray persistently and to pray fervently in these ways. 
George Mueller once said, I've been praying every day for 19 years and six months for this one person that they would come to saving faith in Jesus. And I'm still waiting for God to move. Do you have any prayers on your prayer list that have been there for 19 years? And you still wake up every day and you go, I'm not going anywhere. You see, the first, the first key as you start to study what it means to fight the good fight, the first tool that has to be in your toolbox is, have you cultivated an honesty with God? Like where you're fully yourself before him, which requires some of those silly moments where maybe you sing aloud in the car and you've got a terrible voice, and, but nobody's there and you just sing, or you, you're willing to tell him the gut-wrenching, honest truth, or you're willing to linger and press in and be fervent because in those moments, you're actually starting to have relationships such that it's not just the security guard standing out front anymore. If you're gonna be men that get to the end as a whole and a healthy person, the first thing that has to be true of us is we actually have to be honest with God. We don't keep hiding and keep pretending. But did you notice that there's another thread and it's actually woven through. It shows up in the middle and it shows up in the end. And you can see that James sees these as woven together. It's not just being honest with God, but it's actually being honest with each other. Like deeply and profoundly honest with someone else or some group of people. Not just skimming the surface, but really being known. You see, it shows up in two different ways. Let's look back at it. It says in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. And being honest with one another, it means that we actually have to invite it in. We have to invite other people into our stuff. There's 54 commands in this book and this is one of them. You are commanded by God to confess your sins to another human being, not just to God, right? That, that's, that's what that command says. So God's command in this text is, confess your sins to other people so that you can experience the healing that God has purchased for you in the completed work of Jesus, that it will be applied to you and it will work its way out in you when you look another man in the eyes and you declare what is actually true of you in the secret shadowy places. The, the reality is God already sees it. We're just coming into the place of agreeing with him and beginning to realize that we actually are free. I think we spend so much of our life posturing and pretending, wanting others to play the charade with us that we really have it all together. And in that equation, what we're actually doing is we're robbing ourselves of experiencing the power of the grace of the gospel that will transform us. If we always have our shining armor on and we're always tough and we're not honest about what's actually happening in our marriage or in the secret places uh, that no one sees or in this other area where I've been sinning against the people I work with and I just pretend like that's not the case and I just praise God and keep moving and we're robbing ourselves of the freedom that Jesus is wanting to deliver to us as a whole person. It's been said that if you live 99% in the light, you live in darkness. And I, I tend to, to believe that is profoundly true. Because if there's 1% that's in your closet that you can always run back to and hide when things are stressful or when you're undone, then darkness still tells your story. It still owns you. 
It's been, it's been said that the best thing that could ever happen to you is that your sin, your deepest, ugliest, darkest sin would be broadcast on the five o'clock news. And when I first heard that, I thought, ah, <laughs> I think that's hyperbolic. Let's keep it to like three or four trusted people, okay? And, uh, but I actually, I had this interesting situation where I was discipling a young man whose dad got caught in a prostitution ring with underage women. And he was on the five o'clock news, literally. And then on the front page of the newspaper. And uh, I was walking through the family with this and walking through this young man, as you might imagine, a devastating set of circumstances. And it was about a year later, we'd been walking through this and, and my friend said, you know, I was just visiting my dad in prison and uh, we had this conversation and he said, it's the most amazing thing. He said, do you know that the best thing that ever happened to my family was the day that my dad got caught? He said, we, we were never gonna be able to heal because of the things that were happening in the secret. And he said, but strangest thing, he and my mom are healthier than they've ever been and my dad's in prison. <laughs> Our relationship is finally real. God's bringing healing. And he said, we wouldn't have picked any of it, but the sin being exposed was the entrance to the gospel finally being true for us. You see, it's not until we live radically in the light that we can experience the joys of what Jesus has accomplished for us. If we're always scrambling to stay hidden, we're missing the freedom that he is covering us. If your sin is small and the way that you've told your story and the way that you've managed everything, if your sin is really small, then your savior is also really small. He just needed to save you from the few little things that you actually have owned and brought into the light. When in actuality, what he's going is, oh, the rabbit hole is so deep. And what I want you to know is what I already know is that I died for all of it. So bring it into the, into the fullness and experience the glory and the joy of being loved at your deepest and ugliest point. This is, this is not just a suggestion and it's not just a God. It is a command and it's two other people. I remember uh, the best and the worst day of my marriage in many ways was while I was in seminary. Um, that's where you study to be professionally religious. That's how people know you're holy. I've mastered the divine. <laughs> and so as absurd as that title is. I was in my second year and I came home one day and my wife was sitting in the living room weeping because she had seen the history on my computer and the fact that I was looking at other women. And uh, <laughs> I had lived minimizing and hiding this for so long that I was comfortable memorizing my Greek paradigms and passing all of my seminary exams with flying colors while sinning against my wife and living in the secret. And there was something about seeing hot tears on my wife's face that caused me to finally realize the weight and the reality of my sin, that sin is always communal, but we fool ourselves into believing that it can be private. And confession helps us to come into reality 
to say, oh, this has always been affecting everyone around me because I'm not delivering myself as a whole and a pure person into this situation because I'm riddled with secret sin and I can't fully be free and fully celebrate Jesus. And as a result, it, it affects everyone around me. It affects the culture that I'm creating. It was the worst day to wound my wife like that. But it was the best day because it's where healing broke in, where I started to live in sobriety. A dam of grace broke and flooded my soul in a whole new way. So my question, my question for you is, are you 99% in the light? 97, 84? (laughs) Whatever that percentage is that you allow to remain in the shadows is the percentage that is diminishing your joy in Jesus. It's robbing you. And the invitation, and not just the invitation, the command of God is to be honest with one another and to to confess our sin. And then interestingly, he doesn't stop there. He pulls the thread back through at the end. Did you hear this? Right before James drops the mic at the end of his epistle, James is unlike all the other epistles. He doesn't say, and by the way, hug this person and say them, tell them I said hello. Remember, he's just a quarterback at the line. He's barking orders, he's urgent, and he wants to make sure that we're faithful to the end. And then he comes to this and he says in verse 19 and 20, he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, the last note is we don't just invite it in, but we initiate it with others. He's actually telling us when someone won't confess their sin to you, but you're starting to realize you think something's going on. He's saying, you need to go find them out and say, brother, I'm concerned about you. How are you doing? Because the invitation is to be the sort of community that's so committed to one another. We say, I will invite you in. And when I cease to invite you in, you better come find me and invite me out. Because if we're going to be the sort of men that finish Don't just start the good fight and don't just do like a good religious Bible study and check another box, but we're like men in the fight. We have to be wholly honest before God and wholly honest before each other because something happens there that is powerful, magical, mysterious, and life-changing. Consider this. When you start to be honest with God, you're worshiping him and you're praying He grows more and more glorious and beautiful in your sight because you see him for all of his perfection. And then you begin to be honest with one another. And you start having to deal with the grime and the grit and the hidden dirt in your heart, in your life. What you realize is there is this yawning gap between the glory of God and the sin that marks my life. And brothers, the only thing that can bridge that gap is Christ and him crucified. The way that you become enthralled with the beauty and the glory and the grace of the gospel, which to fight the good fight is to to trust in this true gospel and to be transformed by it, which requires these two tools that leave us in this place going, oh God, save me. Like I need someone to bridge the gap between your glory and my sin because I am so flawed and I will never be able to make my way to God. But into that space, God in all of his glory says, oh, but I've come for you. The blood of my son covers you and his resurrection speaks a better word over you. You never have to hide again, brother. You get to live in the light and the joy and the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you. And when those two tools are in your hands 
and being worked day by day. You're equipped to fight the good fight, to plunge into this journey and not just to start it, but to finish it, to get to the finish line, faithful and whole before God, because he has brought you through as you engage honestly with him and honestly with each other. Would you allow me to pray for you as you consider going on this journey? Please join me as I pray for you. So God, these men in this room, stepping into this space, I just pray that right now, that you would invite them deeper into your heart. Whatever they have known of you, I pray that in the coming weeks and months, they would experience more and more of you seeing your beauty and your fullness, being willing to sing, being willing to pray honestly and fervently and persistently, to really pray until they've prayed, to to enjoy your presence. And I pray that even around these tables with some of the men right next to them, that they would courageously step into places they've never been, living in the light and experiencing the fullness and the freedom of the gospel together. And I pray that someday we would gather at your throne and with hearts bursting with joy, singing a new song, we would rejoice that we have fought the good fight and we have finished the race. Make it true of these men for your glory, for their joy. Would you make it true in Jesus' name? Amen. Men, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Faith Bridge Men podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe so you can catch future episodes and help us spread the good news by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing this episode with another man who would be helped by the content. And we will catch you next time on the Faith Bridge Men podcast. Until then, keep fighting the good fight.